welcome back to DCEKG, produced by Big Wig Media and distributed by our partner Evergreen. Uh, Once again, we want to thank our sponsor, Survivors for Solutions, uh, which was founded by our good friend John Swartaki, survivor and producer of DCEKG. This is Joe Grogan, along with Eric Euland, and this week we want to talk about uh, the speaker's race. Eric is widely understood to be an expert on all things United States Senate, but he happens to also be an expert on the U.S. House of Representatives and all things political in D.C. So, Euland, um, this, uh, is it fair to call this a slow-moving train wreck, or is this, is this just messy sausage-making? What is going on here? Um, obviously, McCarthy got defenestrated by um, every single Democrat voted to throw him out and six Republicans uh, led, I think you'd consider Matt Gates the leader of the insurrection. And then the, that was what, two weeks ago? Two weeks ago, right, Joe. And this week or last week, I guess, depending on whenever this airs, we have had the week of three speakers. So Kevin McCarthy, from California, of course, was, to your point, thrown out of the speakership. Then Steve Scalise, Republican from Louisiana, was affirmed by the House Republican Conference as speaker-designate, but decided after a day that that wasn't his cup of tea, or more importantly, he didn't have the votes. So the House Republican Conference turned around and picked Jim Jordan from Ohio to serve as a speaker. Uh, however, Turns out that Jim Jordan also doesn't have the votes. Okay, wait, 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 wait. I'm going to hold you up because I think we're skipping over something basic um, that a lot of people may not understand. Okay, so you throw McCarthy out. He's no longer speaker. And there's this special procedure that's been put in place, what, since 9-11, that if the speaker is removed or incapacitated, there's a designated speaker pro tempore, and that's Patrick McHenry, correct? Patrick McHenry, yes, from North Carolina. And you're right. So 9-11 gave us all sorts of challenges from a continuity of government standpoint when it came to the House of Representatives and the Senate. So the House came up with this process where in the event of a speaker absent, they could pull out an envelope inside which there's a secret list of speaker pro tems. And so in this circumstance, the first time ever that the speakership has been declared vacant by a vote of the House, McCarthy goes, the envelope is open, and Patrick McHenry's name is at the top of the list. Okay, yeah, so this is what I don't understand. Um, Well, I don't understand a lot of this. But you're telling me this is the first time this the house is just boom thrown out a speaker and not had a speaker. I mean, the nine eleven procedure was in case the speaker gets killed in an attack or can't get to the house or whatever. Correct, incapacitated. But now this is the first time ever. How does it normally work? I mean, other speakers have been thrown out. When Newt got thrown out, when Denny Hassert got thrown out, how did this play out? Yeah, so in the past, you have a speaker die in the middle of their tenure, or to your point, 
they leave the speakership at the end of a Congress, at the end of two years. So Newt lost his speakership at the end of 1998. His conference didn't want to support him for a speaker anymore, so he wasn't going to be speaker. Um, Speaker Haster actually lost his majority in 2006, Mm. so he couldn't be speaker anymore because Republicans were going into the minority. So there are plenty of ways that the speakership can end up without an incumbent, but we've never gone through a process, never seen a process unfold, I guess a better way to put it, where the House majority gets together in a room and decides this is not the guy we want, go to the House floor, vote on a resolution saying, I'm sorry, the speakership is now vacant and take the speakership away from an individual. So that's what happened a couple of weeks ago to Kevin McCarthy. Right. Okay. That was the first time that it had ever been done mid session. uh, Okay. Yeah. Well, that Mm -hmm. that sounds like an interesting, um, so there's innovation. Your, yeah, exactly. Uh, so so then, you have that precedent. So then, then, wait, so then the next thing that I don't understand is, um, or a lot of people may not understand. So then you go into Republicans only gathering and they say, okay, who's going to be our pick? And because a majority of Republicans pick somebody doesn't mean that that person is actually going to be speaker because then you have to get everybody on the house floor, including all the Democrats, because the speaker isn't like, the majority leader of the party. He's the speaker of the entire house, right? Yes, absolutely. When the speakership was created back in 1789, it was seen as much more of an administrative function. Person is supposed to be scheduling bills, stand above. At that point, they didn't have parties, stand above factions, what they called them back then, and be able to ensure the house process business. Quickly, though, they became a party role, a partisan uh, responsibility, and certainly in the later 20th century, became one of the principal spokesmen of whichever party held the speakership. So you've got a communications role, you have an administrative role, you have a partisan role, and part of the care and feeding responsibility of a speaker is making sure you continue to have support of your majority conference or your majority caucus in the house and so kevin lost the support of eight members of the house of representatives gop conference he actually lost a lot more support but in a shirt skins exercise uh, people were willing to give him further chances but he lost eight votes and in a house eight republican votes i should say in a house which for which the partisan split is very tight right now they're only 221 House Republicans, you need 217 to conduct business in the House right now. Losing eight votes meant that your speakership was null and void, which is what happened. Okay, wait, wait, wait. But so wait a second. So they vote for Scalise. The first dude that comes out with a majority mm -hmm. of Republicans vote in this private Republican meeting is Scalise. Now, somebody might think that there were an understanding going into that room Whoever wins the majority, we all vote for when we go on the House floor. I mean, that's how I think people would assume it would be, that if you come out and then uh, you tell the world, we've got our majority, uh, we've got a majority vote, we have our speaker we're going to put up, we've decided it would be unanimous Republican. But that is not how the Republican Party is working in the House. Not these days. So Steve Scalise went into the room, came out with 113 
votes in favor of him being their speaker designee, 113 out of 221. However, three of those votes were from Republicans who have no vote in the full House. They are representing non-voting seats in the House. So delegates is what they're called. Um, and so from what, actually, like American Samoa or where are these guys right, from? Exactly. Yeah. So, well, uh, right. So if you take those three out of his total, he only had 110 House Republicans eligible to vote backing him for speaker. So 110 times two is 220. That's one shy of even having half of the House Republican majority supporting him. So he spent 24 hours working with colleagues, seeing if he could turn votes. He was unsuccessful, and that's why ultimately he stepped aside. Okay, for... wait. Okay, so he steps aside, but can I, mm-hmm. I just want to take it, go down the rabbit hole on Steve Scalise yeah, for a second. Uh, you and I both met Steve Scalise. We've been around him for a long time. We've watched his career. Um, we watched in horror when he was gunned down uh, at the softball practice in preparation for the congressional softball game, Republicans versus Democrats by a crazed Bernie Sanders supporter right in, in uh, North like Delray. North or Arlington. Right. right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, I don't think I've ever heard anybody call the dude a squish. I mean, he showed a lot of courage. He came back into the house, busted hip, uh, you know, not busted hip, shattered hip from a bullet, nearly died, um, and comes back, goes to work, is a team player, raises money, uh, is likable. What's not to like about Steve Scalise? What's the criticism about Steve Scalise? To your point, he has a lifetime American Conservative Union record of uh, support of conservative votes over 90%. There is nothing not to like about Steve Scalise. In addition to his personal story and his near-death experience, he's currently battling blood cancer, multiple myeloma. Right. So there is a very notable and notable uh, personal aspect to his service in Congress and again, very consistent conservative. However, there's a fair number of House Republicans who had set their hearts on Jim Jordan being speaker. And no matter what, they wanted Jim to become the speaker designate for the House Republican majority and ultimately the speaker in a full vote of the House. And they could not move themselves to be supportive of Steve after this vote was held. And to your point, unify as a majority conference behind their elected nominee. So a lot of members spent a significant amount of uh, the day after this vote for, for Steve Scalise talking amongst themselves, um, but decided that this is not the nominee they wanted to support. And therefore, um, Steve decided at the end of 24 hours that the best thing to do was step aside. One of the big challenges for the House Republican conference is a reluctance to go to the House floor and repeat what happened in January. Those who who watched or paid attention in January saw Kevin McCarthy go through 15 rounds of full House votes before he could become Speaker of the full House because 
multiple members of the House Republican conference, the majority conference, wouldn't vote for him. Um, they voted for other candidates or they just withheld their votes. Uh, and so that took a five-day, 15-vote round before Kevin could ultimately become Speaker. Now, most of the House Republicans don't want to repeat that exercise with whoever is their designee. That gives opponents of whoever the designee is the ability to stave off a vote. And if they don't like the nominee, say they're not going to support them out on the House floor. All right. So then Jordan is the new... Jordan is the latest, right, the speaker designate for the House okay, Republican so Conference. Okay, so he right. got a majority. Do we know what his vote count was? Do you know off the top of your head what his vote yeah, count was? Yeah, so he got about, I think it was 127 votes uh, in a two-person race uh, against another congressman, Austin Scott, who announced three hours before the vote. Austin Scott um, got nearly 90 votes. Uh, so when in the House Republican Conference, they actually can have two votes, first on trying to pick a nominee, then voting on whether or not everybody should unify in support of the nominee. So they actually had a vote on whether or not they should unify behind Jim Jordan, and 55 House Republicans said, no, we're not going to do that. So <laughs> That's not it, five. No, that's, no, that's not, not three. five. That's not eight. Yeah, that's not 13. That's... 55 House Republican members. So whether or not Jim Jordan remains the speaker designate of the House Republican majority uh, is as a big open question. Um, and so Jim Jordan has spent the weekend seeing whether or not he can flip votes um, and bring people to his side. Again, Jim, really consistent, conservative, very hard charging. His most important um point that he has made repeatedly since he came to the House at the beginning of 2007 is, look, we should do what we campaign on. We should vote on what we say we support. We should move it through the House and we should stand behind what it is that we tell the voters we want to see enacted. Eric, come on. What is he for apple pie too? What person doesn't believe that? Who comes in and says, you know what we should do? We should lie to the voters and do a bunch of crap and and not vote how we say we say we will i mean come on that what i'm sorry to be cynical about it but why is that a virtue so in jim's case his point is backed up by a, a fair amount of evidence that when house republicans have been in the majority jim and many others believe that they actually don't put core conservative pieces of legislation out on the House floor, that they take out provisions or don't even fight to pass conservative proposals. And there are a lot of members who truly believe that and lots of folks in the public who believe that as well. That they get sold out. Like there's so a... they get sold, sold out and that the agenda dies a borning in the House of Representatives. They'll put so... up a bill. Wait, they'll put up a bill. I'm trying to think of an example. They'll put up a bill... Like they'll put up three bills so everybody can go on the record saying they voted, for instance, I'm just going to pick a topic, pro-life or uh, pro-border wall. But the border wall, there's three different border wall bills and of different lengths. So you're able to say, oh, yeah, I voted for 3,000 miles of border wall. Somebody else voted for 2,000. But 
80 feet deep or something like that, or 80 feet high. So everybody gets a vote that they can campaign on, but there's no border wall. Stuff like that, right? Stuff like that, yeah, because there's a big difference between voting for something and actually getting a law enacted. And so Jim's most significant calling card has been, look, let's get these things enacted. Let's just not only talk about them. And there's a healthy amount of of support for that amongst House Republicans, figuring out ways, strategy and tactics to actually pull off conservative agenda items. However, knowing that the Senate is run by Democrats, knowing that the presidency is run by a Democrat, there's also a healthy number of House Republicans who think, look, we need to advance conservative priorities. We need to enact as many of them as we can, but we can't overpromise and underdeliver unless and until we actually have a Republican president and a Republican Senate. So there's a real apprehension about setting a stake in the ground and then turning to the voters and saying, well, we tried and turning to conservatives and saying we gave it our best shot but not actually being able to put meat on the bone and actually bring about these conservative uh, accomplishments. So there's a lot of disagreement inside the House Republican Conference now about the best way forward. Jim, again, as the designee, they're focused on seeing whether or not they can move votes in his support. Um, You've got the backdrop of an acting speaker, the Speaker Pro Tem, Patrick McHenry, who under the House rules, does have the ability to conduct business in the House. He has chosen not to for now. Um, And some very pressing uh, national security issues focused right now uh, specifically on the House, I know, to provide support to Israel and other national security priorities, as well as a series of natural disasters here at home. Um, right, wait, at wait, some wait, point, wait, the wait, house is going to have to have to move forward. Now, I know I just 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 packed a lot in there. Happy to unpack right, it. Too much, but, too much pack. But too much pack, not enough time. The point I'm trying to make is that over the past two weeks, they've had an acting speaker, but the business that the house should be working on is quickly stacking up. Right, and House Republicans feel that pressure as well. So. While they have an acting speaker who could transact business, put business in front of the House of Representatives for work, he's chosen not to do that while the House Republican majority tries to sort out the speaker business. Does he have a calculation there that if he starts to lean in and flex his muscle as speaker pro tem and say, I basically have all the powers of a normal speaker, that it would alleviate pressure? to come up with a full-time speaker? Is that why he's not doing this? Or is there actual confusion about how much power he has as speaker pro tem? So there's definitely an effort here to try to encourage House Republicans to come to an answer sooner rather than later by just keeping the House in stasis. But this is the first time that there has been a speaker pro tem, an acting speaker this way, Uh, serving in this role, and every action that he would take would create a precedent. Now, in Washington, D.C., there's always a concern that when you create a precedent, you wonder whether or not in a situation where you are the minority in the future, could that precedent be used against you, your party, your priorities? 
And so there's a piece of McHenry's calculation here, not wanting to create precedents that potentially could come back and harm the Republicans if they were ever to be in the minority again. Also institutionally, because this is the first time you've had a speaker, acting speaker, named in this way, there is also a concern about whether or not as you take new actions, create these precedents, you're creating an off-ramp or a road for the future where the House won't have to have a speaker, that a House majority could elect a speaker right. uh, at the beginning of a, right. of a Congress it and then turn around me- a few days later and knock, knock him or her out um, and right. just go with a speaker pro tem for two years. And Well, the, okay, so two things about, about this. One, the pro, speaker pro tem is did not even know McHenry was did not know and un, un, unless McCarthy had whispered to him that he was the speaker pro tem they opened up an envelope after uh McCarthy gets defenestrated and it says Patrick McHenry and Patrick McHenry says holy cow now I'm running the show correct this was all secret to prevent that type of dynamic where somebody who knows they're going to be speaker pro tem may say hey let's chuck the current guy out and I'll become speaker Right. And so Patrick was notified uh, about uh, 24 hours before the the vote to throw out McHenry happened that he was first on the list. But, yeah, you don't want to create this incentive for the the Academy Award envelope to be popped open for somebody else. All right. One last thing. Well, not one last thing, but on the vote itself and this decision to get rid of McCarthy, Jordan's got 55 votes against. Yeah, I know that's somewhat tentative. But was this parts of Matt Gates and the and the group of eights plan? You throw out McCarthy and you get Jim Jordan. Was this planned ahead and that may cement the 55 or was it really sort of chaos theory? We don't really care. We'll we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. For some of the opponents of Kevin, it was definitely chaos theory. We their, their contention was. <clears throat> that they could get an upgrade regardless, so long as they remove McCarthy. Others who opposed Kevin or had concerns about his speakership really wanted Jim to be his replacement and worked hard over the last couple of weeks to put Jim in as the new speaker. So, Okay, wait. Next question is, what about the Democrats and all this? I'm watching uh, the Democrats say, hey, listen, Um, they're making political hay out of this. They're saying the Republicans are dysfunctional. Uh, we, when we have the majority, we run a tight ship and boy, do they ever, I mean, Nancy Pelosi didn't have much of a majority, but she, uh, got a lot of stuff passed and spared the country, um, the spectacle. And they're saying, do a coalition with us. What's What's the likelihood of that? Um, is there is it possible for a group of Republicans to just say screw this, enough is enough, and punish the Matt Gates uh, function? Or, excuse me, Matt Gates. Uh, what's the word? Group Faction. for doing this in the first place. Yeah. So definitely, Hakeem Jeffries, the, the leader of House Democrats, has repeatedly talked in the past couple of weeks about creating a coalition for more moderate Democrats and more moderate Republicans uh, to work together to administer the House. 
lot of open questions about that, but we have seen examples in state legislatures for power sharing um, or even unique moments, for example, in California's state legislative history or New York state legislative history, where a close majority relies on votes from the minority in order to actually function. And the trade-offs in each of those instances, providing legislative uh, opportunities, providing appointments, uh, and the like have all been part of the negotiations. And that's what Jeffries is holding out right now. Most House Republicans are not interested in creating a coalition with Hakeem Jeffries in order for the House to operate. But, but are there are there discussions ongoing behind yeah, the scenes? Yeah, I was going to say, but, but there, are, there are a few who, for a variety of, of reasons, interest in the institution, for example, or looking at the remaining items of House Republican priorities that they still would like to see action on, uh, even if they can't get enacted, at least get voted through the House. Uh, talking with some representatives of Mr. Jeffries about if there's a way to structure a power sharing arrangement in order to get the House operating again. Doesn't appear that those conversations have reached a point of ripeness. Uh, a lot of significant open questions. Who gets named to be speaker, uh, supported by uh, a coalition? Um, what the agenda of the House would be if there's a coalition supported speaker? What's the protection, if any, for this coalition speaker serving in this role? Could they get thrown out um, mid Congress? So lots of unexplored territory here, but that there are some members in the House of Representatives talking about it. Absolutely. Where it goes remains to be seen. Okay. This eight who voted to get rid, rid of um, McCarthy, any of them regret this move at this point? Has that, or is there any evidence that any of them regret it? No, there's no such evidence. And I don't think any of them do. They believe in their hearts that Kevin's stewardship of the House opened the door to higher spending and an inability to move legislative priorities through the House. Okay. Accurate or not, they just truly believe that, and they don't have an interest in seeing um, anything but a change in how the House is led by a conservative Republican at the at the top. Okay. So uh, you mentioned the stuff that's stacking up. I think when before Kevin blew up, uh, we had we'd been speaking about healthcare legislation. Uh, we're now in mid October, so we've got now you start to talk about end of the year spending bills, extenders, and oh by the way, we've got probably the most serious foreign policy crisis ongoing since when decades. I mean, and decades, decades right yeah. mm-hmm. um you know with the with the catastrophic uh terrorist attack in israel which uh i i think it's becoming clear that the intelligence and military failure among the israeli um government and really the planning of hamas is far more extensive and terrifying than than anything we've seen before. They really Hamas did a tremendous amount of planning and the failure and and their execution was just unbelievably effective and the Israelis failed. So I think people are 
like looking at this with with like a wow we did not realize this was capable it's really kind of dwarfs even what was done on 9-11 not in the in the scale of the life lost although a ton of israeli citizens were lost but the sophistication of the planning and the execution across multiple fronts multiple different weapon systems just an unbelievable um terrorist attack so uh, you saw mccall uh come out and say look the rest of the world is watching uh we've got a major problem going on in ukraine ukraine's asking for more money the israelis need more money we've already telegraphed that we're short of munitions to send to ukraine for heaven's sakes we've been sending stuff pre-positioned stuff out of israel because we were lulled into thinking everything was calm and and chill there and oh by the way there's still taiwan out, uh, taiwan out there and the iranians uh don't dig us so what the hell you i mean when are they going to sort this out and start to address some of these issues i mean when do you think it it snaps and these and somebody just loses it and said we got to make a decision here uh because we can't screw around like what's the breaking point on spending weapon systems appropriations addressing these intel failures and getting unified Great question. And you're absolutely right. The barbarism in Israel and the terrible tragedy of 9-11 are just horrific to, to think about, um, but it also indicate significant challenges. So right now, the federal government is funded for its discretionary operations through November 17th. And most people watching Congress believe that that's kind of the break point for any extended amount of time of indecision and drift amongst House Republicans that by the time you get no later than mid-November, I should say, there have to be decisions made and the ability to move legislation at the forefront of House Republicans' minds in the event that they cannot settle on a speaker. Now, People have talked, as we've discussed, whether or not Patrick McHenry could go ahead and and, and steward the House in his current role. But that pressure point of the needs for Israel, the questions about what to do on Taiwan, the definite internal challenges of House Republicans who have a real reluctance to be uh, supportive of additional Ukraine spending without a a plan for, for victory. Uh, All that is coming together, and as we talked about earlier, is really at the forefront of the need for the House to try to make a decision, um, the House Republicans, to allow, again, allow Patrick to act as the speaker or select a real speaker so that they can actually move legislation um, and work on what the needs of, of Israel are. Um, and as I said, the clock is ticking with this discretionary spending deadline in mid-November. So, so mid-November, we got a month. It could be as long as that. Most people don't anticipate it going that long. But of course, most people anticipated that Kevin wouldn't get thrown out um, or that we would be in the this imp- unprecedented situation in the first place. So, so um, I think we, uh, you and I have been around a long time. We've looked at other places in the world when you can't form form a government 
and we view that as like somewhat dysfunctional. But here we have some something quite analogous that the People's House, the House of Representatives, where all tax and spending legislation originates, is unable to form. Fair? Right now, unable to operate. Yes, exactly. But they okay. do have they do have within their power the ability to find a speaker um, or to find another path forward in order to to operate and deliver legislation. All right. Well, uh, this has been a pretty horrific week for a whole host of reasons. And, um, you know, you and I both have, have friends in Israel and, yeah. uh, it's obviously very sobering and let's hope the house of representative gets this, um, sorted out and we can get unified and figure out how to address these multiple challenges. Fair. Totally fair. Absolutely agree. All right. On behalf of DC EKG, this is Joe Grogan and Eric Euland. Again, thanks very much to our sponsor, Survivors for Solutions.